Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John. Uh, John is the fourth book in the New Testament, so if you're wondering where it is, uh, head toward the middle of your Bible and go right. Uh, and uh, John 11, 1 through 44 will be our sermon text for this morning. But before we read that together, let's pray together. Father, we know that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And we know, Father, that your word uh, pierces into our souls. And uh, we pray that uh, as we draw near to you this morning, that you would lay bare our hearts uh, not only that we would understand your word, that we would come to, to better uh, see Jesus in it, but that we would know ourselves in light of him. Father, we pray that as we see Jesus, we would worship, we would marvel, uh, we would repent of sin, that we would rest in Jesus, and that you would uh, transform us by the work of your spirit through all of that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John 11, beginning with the first verse. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What do you think about uh, this saying? You've likely heard it before. Uh, the saying, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Uh, how do you feel about that? It comes from a, a poem, I'm, I'm told, by Alfred Tennyson, published in 1850. It was born out of his own grieving process over the loss of a friend. Now, I'm not particularly interested in the saying itself this morning. You can contemplate that on your own, I guess. But there are two things I think this saying says about us. The first, this saying says, sometimes pain is better than not pain. Better to have loved and lost pain than never to have loved at all. The pain of loss is better than no pain with no love. This at least uh, is what the saying says. Uh, this reminds me of that other great poet, Vision, you remember from WandaVision, who said, what is grief if not love persevering? So better to have loved and grieve 
Better to have loved and persevere in love, even if that means grief and loss and pain. Better to have loved and persevere in grief than to have never loved at all. And so first I notice about this quote of Tennyson that it's, it's sometimes, sometimes that pain is better than no pain. That's what it's saying. You know, we, we know this in other areas of life. You work out and your muscles ache and you say, yeah, but that's a good pain. Uh, there are bad pains, don't get me wrong, uh, but that's a good one. Sometimes pain is better than no pain. Uh, the, the second place my mind goes when I think about this saying is what, is what does Tennyson mean by love? Or maybe more to the point, when people quote this, what do they mean by love? Often my guess is in the, it, uh, what people mean is simply the feeling of being in love. You know, better to have a feeling of being in love at some point and to have lost it, lost that love, than to never have loved at all. Uh, well, maybe, uh, perhaps, I, I don't really know, but I do think there is something here that connects profoundly with our passage because first, sometimes pain is better than not pain. And second, sometimes love is the cause of that. See, our text this morning is the climax of Jesus' public ministry in John's story. Shortly after this, Jesus will disappear from the public eye for a time uh, before his reappearing in the public eye, which coincides with his arrest and trial and crucifixion. But this moment, as John tells the story, is a kind of climax. Uh, Now, I'll say that again when we get to chapter 12, the next chapter, but this is a kind of climax because it's the last of Jesus' signs in John's gospel, the last of his miracles. And it's a climactic one, right? The, The raising of Lazarus from the dead. It's at least the last miracle prior to Jesus' own resurrection. Uh, We're going to look at this story, John 11, uh, 1 through 44, over two sermons. So this this week, uh, we're just looking at the love of Jesus. And we'll see three things about that love, particularly the love of Jesus, uh, that love sympathizes with, love seeks the good of, and love suffers for. Those things are true of love in general, but they're in particular true of Jesus. Jesus sympathizes with, Jesus seeks the good of, and Jesus suffers for. And again, we're going we're gonna to look at this story this morning as a whole, really three or four times. We're going to walk through the story multiple times, and we'll notice certain details each time. So if I skip something the first time around, trust that we'll likely come back to it either this week or next. But first, we're going to look at sympathy. Love sympathizes with. Uh, the, the phrase sympathizes with is almost, uh, although it's uh, really almost necessary in English, it's actually redundant. It's like saying ATM machine, because the word sympathize means to suffer with. Love is certainly more than sympathy, but it is never less. To love someone is to feel with them, to feel what they feel, to rejoice with those who rejoice, and to mourn with those who mourn. Sympathy, true sympathy, is a hallmark of love and a hallmark of Jesus. Our our story this morning begins with the illness of Lazarus whose sisters were Mary and Martha, uh, the Mary who is famous for anointing the feet of Jesus. And these same sisters send a message to Jesus in verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now right away, this is an interesting message because they don't say Lazarus whom you love is ill, but simply he whom you love. 
This seems to imply that Jesus' deep love for this particular friend, they don't even have to name him. The writer, John, five times calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved in other places in the book. Some think that doesn't mean any particular special affection, only that John is overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus would love him, even him. But at least here, the implication seems to be Jesus' specific special affection for this friend, Lazarus, and actually for his whole family. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loves this family. And we'll come back to the fact in a minute that Jesus waits to actually go to them. But for now, just note Jesus' love and that he does eventually go to them. He says to his disciples, our friend Lazarus is sick. In fact, he's fallen asleep. Now, they, of course, misunderstand him as most people in John's book seem to do. Uh, They take Jesus on a purely literal earthly level. In verse 12, they say, if he's asleep, he'll recover, right? Sleep is good if you're sick. Let him get his rest. Why bother him? And then Jesus speaks plainly in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. And they agree to go. Now, by the time Jesus gets to Bethany, Lazarus has been in the grave four days. That means Jesus has missed the funeral, but has arrived in time still to participate in the traditional seven-day mourning period. Martha comes out to meet Jesus, but Mary continues to sit in the house. Notice Martha's words to Jesus in verse 21. She begins, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And now notice uh, Mary's words in verse 32. She says the exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Identical words. Now there are differences. Martha goes on. She says more in verse 22. Mary just simply falls at Jesus' feet and is weeping in verses 32 and 33. But at least initially, they begin with the same words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Uh, What I want you to notice, though, is something that is kind of fascinating to me, which is although their words are identical, Jesus' response is completely different. We're going to talk about the specific content of Jesus' words to Martha next week, that famous phrase, I am the resurrection and the life. But notice Jesus responds to Martha with a dialogue, a discussion, a theological back and forth. Jesus wants Martha to understand something, and so he tells her. But notice how Jesus responds to Mary in verse 33. Mary says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled. Uh, Now, this word for deeply moved, it's a strong word. It, It can mean snort with anger. It's, it's a word that's used for horses in battle. And because of this, some have thought that Jesus was angry at this point at their unbelief. He sees them weeping, the logic goes, and is angry that they do not believe in him and his power to raise the dead. Now, I think that's absurd, uh, given the context, especially given the fact that Jesus himself is about to weep in verse 35. It's amazing what some people will do to explain away Jesus' sympathetic love here. Now, if anger is what is meant to be expressed here, rather than simply deep, unsettled emotion, it is Jesus' anger at death 
and sin. It is Jesus' anger that this world is not what it is meant to be. Jesus is deeply moved and greatly troubled. Now, this second word can refer to troubled waters or a crowd that has been stirred up to a frenzy or even the fear of Jesus' disciples when they see him walk on the sea and believe he's a ghost. It's some kind of agitation, some, some lack of calm, some lack of peace. Jesus, again, will be troubled when he contemplates the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, he will tell his disciples not to be troubled in John 14.1. You know the, the passage, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And again, in John 14, 27, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, sometimes people, I think, misunderstand these exhortations. Uh, some, some have said that the most frequent command in the Bible is do not fear. I think that's probably correct. And this is similar. Let not your hearts be troubled. But there are different kinds of imperatives There are imperatives of command, go do this, and there are imperatives of comfort. You know, when you say to a young child who is afraid, it's okay, Papa's here, don't be afraid. It's not a rebuke. It's not a a rule that you're laying down. It is an imperative, don't be afraid, but not of command, it's an imperative of comfort. You don't need to fear. And I bring this up because some would say that Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Therefore, if you are troubled, you are necessarily sinning. But what does that mean? <laughs> Draw out the logical conclusion. That, that, that the necessary conclusion would be that Jesus is sinning here because he is greatly troubled. He shouldn't be troubled, people might say. He's living in unbelief. Well, no. <laughs> Uh, There are reasons to be troubled in this world. That's what we see here. This world is not what it should be. Sin and death have ravaged our bodies, our minds, our relationships, God's creation. And when we come face to face with that, we should be deeply moved and greatly troubled. But of course, we're talking about, uh, not about us here, we're talking about Jesus. He is deeply moved and greatly troubled. And Jesus asks where they have laid him and where they have laid his friend, Lazarus, whom he loves. They say, Lord, come and see. And at these words, Jesus, it seems, can't take it anymore, and he weeps. Those around Jesus say, see how he loved him? Of course, they have no clue what Jesus' love is about to do. They are about to see how he loved him, but not yet. Again, Jesus is deeply moved in verse 38 as he comes to the tomb, uh, snorting, groaning, moaning with pain and agony, whatever that word conveys, at the death of the one he loves. You know, John tells us this at the beginning of this book in John 1.14. He says, and the word, the eternal son, became flesh in the person of Jesus and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then John says in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side, he has made him known. You know, when we look at Jesus' love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus, when we see the way he loves Martha and Mary, dealing with each a little bit differently according to their needs, according, uh, dialoguing with Martha, weeping with 
Mary. When we see how Jesus loves Lazarus, weeping at his tomb, angry at death and sin and the brokenness of this present age, we're getting a glimpse of the heart of God. Now, there is a debate out there on whether God has feelings or not, and at least it is said uh, God's feelings are not like our feelings. The language in Scripture that God is angry or sorrowful is anthropomorphic, and that's true. But the fact that God's feelings are not like our feelings is no different from the fact that God's thoughts are not like our thoughts. And yes, the language of God's sorrow and anger in Scripture is anthropomorphic, as the language of God's nostrils or God's breath or God's mouth or God's hand is also anthropomorphic. Or uh, more specifically, the, the language of God's emotions is anthropopathic. That's the word of the day, anthropopathic. But as uh, one uh, theologian, Cornelius Van Til, put it, we should be as fearlessly anthropomorphic as Scripture is. Scripture speaks of God's love and compassion and sorrow and wrath and so should we. And Jesus literally is God anthropomorphized, God in human form. And so when we look at Jesus, we are getting a picture of the heart of the Father. Jesus will say in John 14, 9, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. When we look at the sympathy of Jesus, we get a picture of the sympathy of our Father in heaven. God is deeply moved by the pain and suffering in the world. Jesus' compassion through the Gospels tells us something about the heart of God for sinners like you and me. Love sympathizes with the pain, the suffering, the brokenness of the other. Do you know of God's sympathizing love for you? Do you recognize it here in Jesus' sympathy with Mary and Martha and Lazarus? Do you show the same kind of sympathizing love for others, for the broken, for the downcast, for the mourning, the grieving, the sad, and the sorrowful? Love sympathizes with, and love seeks the good of. That Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus is indisputable, but that brings up a very important question. Why did Jesus delay? And go back to the beginning of the story. Jesus finds out Lazarus is ill, verse 3. Lord, he whom you love is ill. And then verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then verse 6. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus loved them, so he waited. He delayed. He stayed a little longer. This is actually a key part of the story because it keeps coming up. And you, you would think if you heard that someone you love is ill and their family members were calling for you to come to the, to the bedside, you would come right away without delay. But John, the writer of this book, the story of Jesus said in verse 5, Jesus loved them. And so, verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he delayed. When Jesus finally does get there, he's missed the bedside of Lazarus. He's missed the funeral. And he comes to Martha, and her first words could be considered a rebuke. Verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What took you so long, Jesus? Why didn't you come? 
You could have saved him. Don't you care? I thought you loved him. I thought you loved us. And remember, Mary's words are exactly the same in verse 32. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, as Jesus is going to the tomb, he weeps. And those around him say in verse 36, see how he loved him. But others say in verse 37, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Again, if he really loved him, where was Jesus when Lazarus needed him most? And have you ever felt like that? Right? Jesus, if you really loved me, why didn't you show up? Where were you when I needed you? Look at what's going on in my life. I thought you loved me. I thought you cared. You see, we look at Jesus through the lens of our suffering. And we think, he doesn't care. Look at what's going on. I thought he cared. We look at Jesus through the lens of our suffering, suffering when we should be looking at our suffering through the lens of Jesus. Now, this story is actually helpful here. Because one, Jesus wasn't there when Mary, Martha, and Lazarus needed him. But two, we're explicitly told, and Jesus shows us, that he really does love him. He really does love Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Three, we're explicitly told that Jesus decided not to be there, which means we have to wrestle with these facts. And thankfully, four, Jesus tells us what he's doing. We don't have to guess. Back to the beginning of the story, verse three. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse four, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus waits. Two days later, he tells his disciples plainly in verse 14, Lazarus has died. But, verse 15, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So they go. Jesus interacts with Martha and Mary. He comes to the tomb and tells them to take away the stone. Martha objects in verse 39. Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Or as the King James Version puts it, by this time he stinketh. And what is Jesus' response to Martha? In verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Why does Jesus do what he does? Verse four, for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified. God's glory will be seen in the glorification of the Son. Now that can feel selfish to us, as if God is just using us as pawns in his self-promotion project. It feels like God is stepping on the little guys to boost himself up. But this is a great, if not also a common misunderstanding. When the Exodus happens, God says one of the purposes is that you may know that the Lord is God. The same thing is true of God's work of creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. They make his glory known. Now here's the question. Did God create the world because there was some lack in his glory? No, of course not. Did God create because he needed people to boost his ego, people to tell him how great he is? No, of course not. So why create, right? Why declare his glory? 
not because of any lack or need in him. You know, when someone is passionate about something, they, they want to talk about it. They want to share it. They want to enjoy it as, they want you to enjoy it as well. So when Deborah and I go out to eat and I taste something amazing, I say, ooh, taste this. I want her to have the same experience as me. I want her to enjoy what I am enjoying. And so people talk about the movies that they watch or the music they listen to or the food they eat or the beverages they drink or the places they go or the teams they follow. And one of the reasons we do this is to invite people to taste and see. Well, God from all eternity was enjoying himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect communion, enjoying the glory of God. And if I can put it crassly, it's as if one day the Father says to the Son, you know what? We could share this with others. We could make people who could enjoy this with us. And it's as if God has been saying from the creation of the world, this is amazing, taste this. But of course the this that he wants us to taste is himself. As David put it in Psalm 34 verse eight, oh taste and see that the Lord is good. God wants nothing less for us than to taste that which is most glorious. So again, verse four. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And verse 15, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Not, I am glad that Lazarus is dead. Jesus doesn't say that. He still weeps at the tomb. Death is still an enemy. But, verse 15, he does say, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Believe what? The glory of God in the person of Jesus. The glory of the Father in the person of the Son. Yes, verse 21 and 32, if Jesus had been there, their brother would not have died. That's true. And verse 37, yes, he, he who opened the eyes of the blind man could have kept this man from dying. That's true. But Jesus is glad that he was not there, that this does not lead to death, but to the glory of God. Verse 39, take away the stone. Lord, there will be an odor. Verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? What is Jesus after in the lives of those whom he loves? He could have kept Lazarus alive. Everybody in the story knows this but he is after something better than life, that you would see the glory of God. Psalm 63, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. God created the world that you would taste and see something beautiful, and he will not stop until you do. And so Jesus stands at the tomb and says, Father, I thank you that you heard me. Past tense. What did the Father heard? Either Jesus prayed quietly to himself at some point that John does not relate, which of course is possible, or the Father heard the groaning and tears of his son. And Jesus goes on, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus wants to be very clear that his work is done on behalf of the Father. 
He came from the Father. He is doing the work of the Father. He will return to the Father. He does nothing on his own. He is not a rogue agent, but the Son of the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. For the Son to be glorified is for the Father's glory to be manifest. And so verses 43 and 44. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The glory of God is seen in death defeated. The glory of God is seen in God's power in our weakness. The glory of God is seen in the person of Jesus saving through the power of his word. The glory of God is seen in a new creation, in old things made new, in broken things made whole again. The glory of God is seen in the person of Jesus who came to defeat death itself. Where are you suffering? Where are you asking Jesus, where are you? There is no promise that today or tomorrow your Lazarus is going to come out of the grave. But there is a promise that God is at work and he will make all things new, Revelation 21 verse 5. And that God will use your current hardships and struggles for good to manifest his glory in your life, Romans 8 28. If you belong to Christ, if you are a friend of the friend of sinners, if you are a sheep who has heard the voice of your shepherd, God loves you and is working for your good in this moment, however hard it may be. And your greatest good is to taste and see that the Lord is good in this moment, in the midst of your hardship and trial and troubles. Love sympathizes with, love seeks the good of, the real good, the ultimate good, and love suffers for. We, we think love is enjoyment. Like I love ice cream, and I love dark chocolate, and I love triptych. Love as enjoyment. But enjoyment is only one-sixth of love. Yeah, that's right, one-sixth. Love is to know and be known to enjoy and be enjoyed, to serve and be served. Jesus will say in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. To love is to give of yourself for the good of another. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Back to verse three, he whom you love is ill. After two days, Jesus says, verse 7, let us go to Judea again. His disciples object in verse 8. They say, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Right? Just, they're saying, look, we, we were on the verge of being killed. Do you really want to go back there? You do realize they'll be waiting for you, right? Jesus says in verses 9 and 10, it's my time to work. Oh, and by the way, our friend Lazarus is dead. Now Thomas in verse 16 says, let us also go that we may die with him. Now Thomas gets kind of a bad rap in the church. We call him doubting Thomas. But what we see here is a Thomas ready to die. He is zealous Thomas. Here's his thought process. Okay, 
They were trying to kill you back in Judea just like three minutes ago. Lazarus is dead. Did they do it? How, how did those things relate? I'm not really sure. You want us to go back, back to the place where people are trying to kill you, where Lazarus is dead. Okay, Jesus, I'm in. Let's go die with Lazarus. Verse 18, we're told that Bethany was near Jerusalem. Why? Well, because verse 19, many of the Jews, that is most likely Jewish people from Jerusalem, had come the two miles to console and comfort, which means that word will get back to those who want Jesus dead, that Jesus is there in Bethany. In verse 20, Martha hears that Jesus is coming and goes out to meet him, which is interesting. Why? Why does she go out to meet him? Why not just wait? It's possible that Jesus is actually staying on the outskirts because he knows the trouble he might cause. People want him dead. Martha comes to Jesus. And then she goes to get Mary in verse 28, tells her in private that Jesus is there. Martha whispers to Mary, the teacher is calling for you. Again, Jesus is a wanted man. By coming here, he's putting himself in harm's way. Steps are taken to keep his presence relatively quiet. And here's the point. By coming, Jesus is actually putting himself in harm's way. But he loves Lazarus and Martha and Mary, and he's willing to suffer for his friends. And suffer he would. And we'll look at the final verses of this chapter in a few weeks, but there the chief priests and Pharisees are so upset by this sign, the raising of Lazarus, and what it will mean for people following Jesus and what it might mean for the Roman government that in, in that moment they decide it's time we do something about this. He's gone too far. And so in verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This moment is the last straw Jesus' raising of Lazarus is Jesus putting the final nail in his own coffin. For Lazarus to live, Jesus must die. Jesus, in love, sympathizes with, seeks the good of, and suffers for. And of course, if Jesus is to seek the good of, he must suffer for. This whole story is headed toward the cross where Jesus will suffer for us and die for sin and be glorified in offering himself up in love in obedience to his Father. And for the sake of his sheep, his people, those whom the Father had given to him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but will have eternal life. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Perhaps you're going through something difficult even now. Perhaps you're wondering, Jesus, where are you when I needed you? If you had only been here, why haven't you come through? Why have you let this happen? Remember Jesus' love. Remember his sympathizing, others-seeking, self-giving love. Remember that he has a bigger plan that you might now see to give you something greater than you can now imagine. And that through his death and resurrection, he wants to reconcile you to the Father and give you the greatest gift that there is, to see, taste and see the glory of God. Stop trying to play God and demand life go your way. And in the midst of your trouble, drink deeply of the glory of God in the glory of his son. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes to see your glory 
in the face of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.